welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Good evening. It is good to be back with you here. And uh, to join you once again, uh, Pastor Tim keeps inviting me back. And uh, I'm not sure if he's allowed not to. I, I don't I, I'm sure he is, but uh, it, it's, <laughs> I, I'm going to take that as, as hopefully a good thing. Um, with the last couple of lectures, we considered the issue, the modern issue and challenge of what is called sexual orientation. And if you were tracking with those lectures, you will know that the, the term sexual orientation is, is not a terribly good term, either biblically, scripturally, uh, or even in terms of what the, you know, the medical literature has even discovered about what this you know, this thing is, this experience that is so commonly called sexual orientation, but really is not one thing. There's lots of different ways in which people understand that or experience that, and they don't neatly align, and there's all sorts of fluidity. And, uh, and so I prefer not to use the term sexual orientation uh, really at all, except for perhaps helping people to understand what it is we are going to be uh, discussing. And today, we move to another uh, issue which is called <clears throat> gender identity, uh, which is nearly synonymous with um, the transgender experience or identity, uh, or what is sometimes called transgenderism. That is a term that probably most progressives or transgender people don't appreciate. So, uh, a little note on that for you to be aware of. But, um, but. We need something to connote this idea in gender identity or transgenderism that your 
natal sex, which is not only your natal sex, but your, your by the biological truth, the creational truth of who you are as a human being written on every cell of your body um, is not consistent with what uh, people feel is their true or hidden gender. And that is what we were referring to when we tackle this topic of gender identity or transgender. So much like with our lectures on sexual orientation, as we considered firstly a biblical or scriptural uh, idea, kind of taking a look at things from, a, from kind of a, a larger picture, to some degree a moral, ethical, but also philosophical uh, idea. And then we turned in our second lecture to what the peer-reviewed literature says about uh, sexual orientation or, or homosexual uh, identity, um, behavior, and attraction, more specifically. Uh, similarly, in this lecture, we'll be dealing with what the Bible says about gender identity. And then in the subsequent lecture, we'll dig into what the, the peer-reviewed literature states and what we can gain from that and how it accords, in fact, with what we see in Scripture. <clears throat> so in this lecture, um, two main ideas, and there'll be some sub uh, ideas and subpoints that we'll touch on. But two main ideas that we'll be um, taking our time here this evening. And first of all, it is the creational foundations of gender. <clears throat> the creational foundations of gender. And much of this will build on what we have already discovered early on in, uh, in our lecture series, but we'll um, recapitulate some of that and we will um, build on that when it comes to. Um, an understanding of, of gender. And we'll get into some exhortational, some pastoral um, counseling on some of these things too, because uh, even if transgenderism hasn't hit most you know, evangelical churches in terms of you know, people fully accepting uh, you know, the idea that somebody can transition or can have a different experience of their gender than how they were created. Even if most evangelical churches haven't fully gone there yet, um, and there are, you know, there is some, around the edges, there is some, uh, some capitulation. Yet, I want to suggest that the confusion around gender does hit many in the church. Um, and so, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So creational foundations, firstly. The second is we want to discuss the body in anthropology, right? In our creational anthropology, anthropology being the study of man, we want to understand how the body plays a role in that anthropology. And, uh, and that is an important aspect of uh, understanding not just gender, not only our role as male and female in this world under God, uh, but also uh, helps us to understand some things that you may not ever, you know, you would never have thought of to be in any way linked to, you know, transgender issues or gender identity issues. Things like um, burial versus cremation. Um, these things are actually connected. We'll touch on some other ones too, but these things are actually connected to the role of the body in relationship to our entire person and how it is that God's creational design 
bears out in a fallen world and, and, and how it is that that is redeemed. So, first of all, let's, let's get back to some creational foundations. And, and even if some of this may be um, repetitive from, from some past lectures, we want to make sure that we are building in the right way as we begin to look at the, the, this modern challenge that gender identity poses to us. Uh, we return, of course, back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we note a couple of things that we remarked upon in the first lecture um, when it says that God created, uh, God created man in his image, male and female. He created them that, first of all, man is created binary. This should be reviewed for many of you. Uh, that is that very clearly in Genesis chapter 1, there are only two genders. Uh, there is no third sex, no third gender. Um, biology is very clear on this. There are transgender advocates that will get into the nitty gritty of, for instance, how some, in some very rare cases, some species will have, um, yeah, will, will have both male and female sexual characteristics. Um, but those who know the biology really well, and I'm not going to go far down this path, but they will note that even in those rare cases, uh, never in mammals, right? never in the higher animal forms, always in lower animal forms, but where they do have these characteristics, that it's still male and female sexual characteristics within a single form. Um, there is never a third sexual characteristic. Um, and so, yes, there are some, you know, there's some uniquenesses within the broader animal world. And as we noted in past lectures, there are some rare occurrences of, um, yeah, some, some, you know, you'd call sort of sexual fallenness. Um, the idea that there may be some um, people that have characteristics of both sexes, but even in those cases, as we noted, um, first of all, most of those people are not transgender. Um, second of all, those, uh, in, in almost every case, those are variations, on, variations is not the right word, they are um, fallen characteristics of a particular sex. Um, and even in the most Yeah, even in the most difficult circumstances where you have something that approaches hermaphroditism, even in that case, um, you've still got something that is between, again, very rare occurrence, something that is between two sexes. So you always have this binary. And in fact, where things go wrong, according to the fall in creation, you still have um, it going wrong along uh, this, you know, this binary form or this binary yeah binary form of mankind so first of all male and female are binary second of all we noted that they are not only binary but dyadic um, and what what I mean by that um, is that there is an exclusive complementarity it is not merely that male and female complement one another that is true uh, 
but that they complement one another in an exclusive way. And I think one of the best ways of understanding this is that male and female face one another. It is not merely that they stand by, side by side. Uh, it is not merely that they alone stand, just, just the two, but it is rather that they, they face one another. And the beautiful picture of that is within marriage, where there is a coming together of male and female in uh, a covenantal sexual union that is oriented towards procreation and further imaging God in the earth. So um, we also remarked that coming out of this idea of, of the dyad, uh, the dyadic nature of mankind as male and female, that male and female differentially image God. Uh, that the, you know, what you would say are, for instance, strengths of male and female are characteristics of God. And that God created male and female uh, to, to fully image him in the earth. And, and this last week, actually, I had, uh, I was reading some, some Augustine and I came across Augustine um, saying this exact point uh, in actually his book on the Trinity. He, he says, quoting from Genesis chapter 1, God created man in the image of God. He created him, male and female. God created them and he blessed them. And he says, Augustine says this, for this text says that human nature itself, which is complete only in both sexes, was made in the image of God. And he's doing this to clarify um, his comments actually on 1 Corinthians 11, where in that context, it says that man is made in the image of God and that, uh, and so, and not, it doesn't say that about woman. And, and Augustine is, clar is clarifying something that practically all good theologians have noted throughout history, which is that that has to be uh, put together with Genesis chapter one, both male and female made in the image of God, but differentially, and both are necessary to image God in the earth. This is particularly the case when we understand uh, that the image of God is not merely the substantive. It's not merely uh, the mind, the will, uh, the intellect, uh, the conscience. It is also the image of God from a triadic perspective uh, is also our relationships. Uh, imaging the community of God, his triune nature. Uh, the image of God in man is also that dominion, that reflecting the, the work of God in the world. And in fact, it is those last two aspects of the image of God that are probably the easiest to ground in the Genesis account itself, even though ironically, the reformed uh, <clears throat> history on the image of God definitely emphasizes the substantive more. Um, but actually in context, it's actually the other two aspects of the image of God that are, that are the most immediate, uh, the most easily seen. So if then the image of God is uh, in the relationships that we have, again, the, the beautiful image, the, the sort of the archetypal image of that is in marriage, uh, but also in dominion, which includes multiplying and filling the earth, then clearly male and female are both necessary to image God. Now, what does this mean to uh, the Christian life? 
Well, this means, and yes, we're still building some foundation here. We will get to more specifically to gender identity here in a minute. But what this means is that when it comes to how to live a godly, fruitful, holy life for the Christian individual, we ought to think not merely in symmetrical terms, but also in asymmetrical terms. In other words, there would be much that we would be able to say to male and female jointly, the symmetrical. We would say, for instance, that uh, to live a godly, holy, fruitful life, you ought to read the scriptures. You ought to pray. You ought to memorize scripture. You ought to serve the church of Christ. Uh, you ought to care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You could say that equally to male and female. But uh, what we would also want to put side by side with that is that if you are a woman, you will do those things in a womanly way. And if you are a man, you will do that in a manly way. Or you could substitute feminine, masculine if you prefer. There are some people that like those words. There are other people that uh, reject those words. I'm happy to use them. Uh, they do conjure up certain sorts of images that may not be maybe quite comprehensive enough um, for what we are saying, what I'm, what I'm pointing out. Uh, but the, there are certain asymmetries that you come across in the scriptures where it speaks specifically to male and female. And um, let's, let's just turn to one of those. There's, there's a number of them. Uh, some of them may be occurring in your own mind even right now. But let's turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. So here Paul is instructing Titus, whom he left on Crete, to order the church, to raise up elders. And he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise. So there is some symmetry here, right? Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, which uh, links up quite well with sober-mindedness and you know, being dignified, uh, not slanderers. Now, there's some asymmetry there now to some degree. Uh, or slaves to much wine. That was not mentioned of, uh, of the men in particular. Uh, here's some more asymmetry. They are to teach what is good in what way? Well, and so to train the young women to love their husbands and children. Uh, again, these are, these are some asymmetrical um, commands here. To be self-controlled. Uh, now that is similar. Pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men, they get, they get one thing to focus on, <laughs> to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. Um, so you see here in this list, there are, you know, even as different groups, different demographics and genders are, um, are targeted, if you will, uh, specified that there are, even within that, some symmetries, but there are plenty of asymmetries. Um, young women, for instance, are told to be working at home. Um, this probably means, first of all, that as a woman bears children and raises them up, that there is an emphasis upon the home uh, that will not be the same for the man because of the children that are there and needing to provide a context for uh, 
discipleship and growth and education that certainly a husband will participate in, but um, it, is, it is very natural and right and good that uh, the young women will be given to this. But it also probably means that to some degree, make sure that you're working at home. Uh, and there is, if you think back to the, the triads that I developed when it came to uh, male and female, you may recount that the, the second aspect of the triad in regards to female was the idea of rest. And I believe that women in a particular way um, demonstrate the extravagance of God, uh, the idea of rest, the idea of enjoyment, uh, whereas men tend to lean more into the idea of the work of God, those first, those first six days um, of creation. And so there is a, and you do see this at times, uh, you do see that there are some women that want to complete, that want to work, but completely outside of the home, and they don't want anything to do with the life of the home or children. Uh, the emphasis is almost completely on working outside the home, and that, that, would, be, that would be wrong. But you also at times see uh, women, especially if they live in a, uh, you know, under the blessing of tremendous wealth, as, as is the case in some parts of, of North America, where there is a home life that actually isn't working. There isn't perhaps the raising up of children, um, but it is, it is a more, uh, a life that's dedicated to self. So probably both things are being said here. Here's what I want, want you to fo focus on here, and I'm saying some things about women in particular, um, partially because those things are particularly politically incorrect these days. So that's why I'm, I'm touching on that in sort of a particular way. We could say all sorts of things about men as well, and we'll, 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 we will say more here. But it's important that you understand that there are both symmetries and asymmetries. And receiving the gift of your creation as male and female is to lean into and to be thankful for and to live in obedience with God's creation of you as male and fe or female. All right. So let me say that again. Here's, this, uh, here's the, the exhortational thing I want to leave you with. Um, we'll get into some other things, but, but this is kind of my, my pastoral exhortation. Consistently live in thankfulness, obedience, and joy of God's creation of you as either male or female. Any behavior, therefore, or attitude, or words, or self-talk, or full-on identification, any of those things which undermines that receiving from God and it, you know, having that thankfulness, obedience, and joy of yourself as male or female, any undermining of that is sinful, and it will have a detrimental effect on your life. Now, this, of course, raises all sorts of questions that I'm, I'm not going to answer today. They are worthy of more reflection, but hopefully even some of our past lectures may help further to answer these questions. But... We, if this is the case, we really do need to have a robust understanding of what male and female really are. 
And one of the reasons this is, is because we see in culture all sorts of caricatures of male and female. So let me mention one way in which this goes bad. Um, we're going to see in the next lecture that the amount of young women who are identifying as either gender non-binary or as transgender is going through the roof currently. And there's a disparity between the amount of, of men and the amount of women. It's, it's, it's going up significantly for women. And I think one of the reasons, there'd be multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is because in our highly sexualized culture, uh, in which there's, there's mass media and everybody's posting their selfies on this and that way, and I see this constantly. I see girls with constantly with their, their phones out, taking the, you know, the, the snaps of them somewhere because they have to keep their, their feed up to date and how they look good. And, and when faced with this, there are many young women, especially, who the entire world, uh, the messaging of the world is that this is what it means to be a woman. And they're saying to themselves, either I don't want to be that, or I can't be that. And, and they're turning the other way. Um, and, and, and not being thankful, obedient, and joyful when it comes to God's creation of them as female. And, and perhaps in subtle or in overt ways, um, undermining the way that God has created them. So with this kind of foundation, Lee, let's take a look at one passage in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. <clears throat> and this is one of the only verses that would address transgender issues sort of head on directly. Um, and it's, it's an interesting one. It's, an, it's one that needs a foundation to be able to rightly apply it. It says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So here it is speaking about uh, the behavior of, of your presentation, um, presenting yourself in such a way that you don't, um, you don't present yourself as the opposite sex. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Now, on the face of it, it's clear enough, but the question is, in a world and in, in history as there's a great variety of expressions when it comes to clothing, garments, um, and even, the, even to some degree, the roles of, of male and female and relative to culture, there's, there, there are some uh, distinctions, probably not as much as uh, our world would want to make of those, but uh, so, for instance, you know, does this mean that a Scot shouldn't wear a kilt? Does this mean a woman shouldn't wear jeans? Okay, this is, I mean, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. But once you've laid the foundation of understanding the binary and dyadic nature of male and female, 
and how there are both symmetries and asymmetries and that we are to receive with thankfulness, obedience, and joy how God has created us, we, we start to apply that uh, you know, to this very specific command. And what we understand, I think, actually becomes pretty easy. And it is this. Don't wear anything that deliberately presents yourself contra creation. Contra your creation. So, is it wrong for a woman to wear a ball cap and jeans? I would say no. But, if a woman is wearing a ball cap and jeans because she does not want to look like a woman, that is sinful. If she wants to use male clothing to escape or hide who she is as a woman, and what it means to image God as a woman within the world. And I do believe, I've mentioned this in, in, in past lectures, I do think that that includes physical beauty. Then, then that is a sin. Conversely, males, men ought to present themselves in a way that leans into the strength and the work that God has given them to do. And throughout history, uh, many, many theologians have actually uh, attacked men. Attacked is probably not quite the right word, but, but spoken strongly against men who wear soft, effeminate clothing. The idea being this, that men, you are created to take care of your, of your household and um, and to get your hands dirty and serving them and supplying for them. And, uh, and your life is supposed to be about the dominion of the world. And so there are certain aspects of, of clothing and how you present yourself and especially how much time you would spend on that that actually is not fitting for a man. That might be fitting for a woman. I do believe that there is a, a, a softness, a, a, a gentleness to women. Again, kind of according with that idea of rest to some degree, or also that idea of resplendency, that beauty, that would suggest that there is something, certainly not, certainly not a command here, please don't misunderstand me, but there is something that, that may be appropriate about soft or clothing or clothing that may not be entirely utilitarian for a woman. But I think for a man, I think that there's, there's certain lines there that ought not to be crossed. And, and I'm, you know, I'm saying that without, without saying that presentation isn't important for a man. But I think that there is, there is a, an expression that is different. And, and again, if you are using any kind of expression, including clothing, to escape or to undermine or to not accept how it is God has created you, then that would be wrong. So, ultimately, the transgender experience is one in which the person, and we'll get to sort of the experience itself in a minute, 
but in which the person is saying to God, I will not accept, I refuse to accept how you have created me. I refuse to present myself in ways that are appropriate, that are receptive to that creation. I refuse to be thankful for my life in how you have created me, including my, my body. And so transgenderism, that experience, is a profoundly rebellious attitude. Profoundly rebellious. This idea that I can actually be the opposite gender. I can successfully escape the most basic design and boundary that the creator has put on me. It's very deep, deep rebellion. And it is for this reason that as a generalization, I don't think Christians ought to use preferred pronouns of those whom they know to be the opposite sex. All right. Now, there may be some very specific circumstances where that would not be sin. I, don't, uh, I want to give you a general idea and counsel without you know, maybe completely hard and fast lines. There may, there may be some exceptions here and there to that. But as a generalization, I do not think Christians should use the preferred pronouns of those whom they know to be the opposite gender because they are aiding and abetting a profound rebellion against God. All right? It's actually deeper than just, I'm kind of helping them lie. It's actually, it's deeper than that. It's more serious than that. And so I suggest in situations where you're faced with that, that you would rather use the person's name even if it is awkward. Right? We tend to use pronouns quite regularly in conversation. It, would be, it will be awkward to always substitute that for, the, for a person's name, but I, I think that in most situations, that is precisely what the Christian ought to do. So, building the creational foundations leads to um, understanding the, these transgender issues. Um, let me get to a second aspect, and that is the place of the body in anthropology. Those of you, uh, I know several of you here this evening, have done some work in the controversies in the early church. Uh, and one of the things that I suspect you dealt with was the idea of Gnosticism. The idea that there is a dualism between the body and the soul or the spirit in which the material, the body, is inherently lesser, inherently sinful, whereas the soul is capable of purity through sort of an inner spiritual knowledge. And what I want to suggest to you is that with transgenderism, we have come sort of full circle back to a, a sort of Gnosticism in which the transgender person posits that they have, that first of all, there's this radical distinction between their body and their, their, their real self, their, their soul or their spirit, and that they have some hidden knowledge of what the true self is, even though that is radically disjunctive um, against their over and against their bodies. 
In contrast to this, the scriptural idea of the person, of, the, of our anthropology, is that we are comprehensive persons that, um, that don't have, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to move away here from the idea of parts of our body, right? But rather, I like the language of John Frame when he speaks about sort of perspectives on the person. Um, so, for instance, there are absolutely places in Scripture where you've got dichotomies, you know, the, the flesh and the spirit. Um, but we have to be careful that when we see those dichotomies, in many cases, that's referring to a, a reality that concerns fallenness and then how we deal with that in redemption. All right? The flesh is not inherently bad. The, the flesh is not inherently contra the spirit. Furthermore, there's a long theological history of trying to figure out how many parts man is. And again, I'm, I'm sort of saying that idea of parts is probably wrong-headed to begin with. But uh, the idea between sort of the, the dichotomy in which soul and spirit are point, put together and then body is the other, uh, or whether soul and spirit and body each kind of are a part of man. Um, I'm not going to answer that this evening, but this is what John Frame says in his systematic theology. He says the idea here in some of these passages that speak about body is not completely separate from the soul and the spirit. Um, and this is why the scriptures talk about, um, on one hand, the fact that we have bodies. It does use that kind of language, but it also uh, refers to you in, in some ways sort of as bodies. That, that the body is not simply a, you know, a tent for your soul, but it really is you. It really is you. So, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So this idea that you, in a certain sense, you have a body, but in, in another sense, you are your body, this means that the body is not free to be done with as you please. It is the temple of God, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are to deal with it in a way that, uh, that we would similarly deal with our, with our spirits. We are to nurture it and keep it, uh, even though it is subject to death because of the fall. Uh, but this leads, you know, this leads into some other issues that, that really are, they're not connected with transgenderism, but it, they're connected with the role of the body in Christian thinking. Things like, uh, that the, you know, all of Christian theology until very recently has always posited that Christians bury their dead. They do not burn their dead. And one of the reasons, there, there's a few, one is, is you know, of course, it, you see in that imagery the, the death and resurrection of our Lord. But it's because we treat the body with respect. 
Because that's, that's, that's actually, in a certain strange way, that's really you. That body will be glorified, and, and you know, as the spirit, the soul returns to it at the coming of the Lord, and, and you will be raised in a glorified body, but still you. People will recognize you as you are. Um, so this, this body is, is important. All of the parts of our body are important. And, and this too helps us to understand how some of the early church influenced by, influenced by Gnosticism sort of got uh, marriage and sexual union quite quickly, not completely wrong, but partially wrong. That, that they treated sexual union as something that was merely permissible rather than something that was actually inherently good. So it is important as we, you know, we have fresh challenges that are thrown at us in these days that we go back to scripture and we try to understand how, yeah, what God is saying to us in his word and how to, in some cases, rebuild the foundation. In some cases, we simply need to go back and, and just assert things that have always been said and not leave the tradition of the church. In other cases, we need to go back. We need to discover some things that, because it was never challenged before, that now we, we pull out things that are certainly there. We're not changing anything, but we're seeing what is there so that we uphold the beauty, the importance of the body, and that we are comprehensive persons where our soul and spirit affects our body, vice versa. And that we ought to understand that as God has created us male and female, that, that that affects everything. And so as we serve him in this world, as we do those symmetrical things, that there's actually a particularly gendered perspective on that, that we ought to respond to with thankfulness, with obedience, uh, with joy. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.